You are listening to the Theologizing at Remedy podcast, a podcast of Remedy Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. The design of the podcast is to help the people at Remedy Church connect theology with community, mission, and care. All right. Welcome to another Theologizing at Remedy podcast, TAR. Yes, sir. We are still in the new new studio which is just the sound booth at the back of the sanctuary. I think this is it. I think this is the This might be the the permanent one. Yeah. Um, It's got a good computer. It's been a while since we've done a podcast, and so we decided that we're going to tackle... That's because you went ahead and got coronavirus. That is true. I did get coronavirus. (laughs) So Um, I had to stay away from you for two weeks. Yeah. Or you had to stay away from everybody. I had to stay from everybody. It was fun. Um, We we could have done a (laughs) Zoom podcast. Yeah, which we were thinking about doing that. So we decided, in the lack of podcasts, that we're just going to go ahead and tackle Reformed Theology. Boom. Tulip. Chris's favorite flower. The five points of Calvinism. The tulip. Um, He plants them all over his yard. Yep. And so uh, just a a couple of things here. This is a remedy distinctive. This is um, in in our membership covenant. One of the distinctives is our teachings on the sovereignty of God. And that's what, this is really a good summary of what we mean when we say the elders are going to teach on the sovereignty of God. We mean that they're going to teach basically what the Bible says and what Calvin, you know, uh, I guess Calvin reading the Bible recognized. We're going to preach these distinctions because they're... And Augustine. And Augustine. And Paul as he wrote the and, Bible. And Paul. And, Paul, and, and Jesus as he taught. Right. And so uh, a couple of things here. Calvin did not actually invent TULIP. No. His followers did. To summarize Calvin's teaching on sovereignty of God and the salvation of man. And they were just responding to the five points of Arminianism. Right. So, you know, Jacobus Arminius, um, his followers invented the five points, and Calvin's followers then responded. He just went by Jake. Yeah, Jake. Good old Jake. Um, Maybe we'll do uh, do the other one too. <laughs> Jake and John, um, so just hanging out. So the the Calvinist followers, Calvin's followers, just summarized it with tulip, just as an easy way of um, kind of remembering it. And, and here's the important thing for you guys listening: um, Charles Spurgeon once said of Reformed theology that it's just a nickname for biblical theology. Right. And that that's really our point here: is we're not trying to throw a system on you or make you bow down and take the name of Calvin as your last name. Or Tulip. Or Tulip. Uh, but w- what we want to point out is, is that Tulip is actually biblical. They're all from the Bible. It's from the text. And so as we go through each one of these things, we're going to give uh, Bible text uh, in favor of them to show you. And that's important. You should never be convinced by an argument in regards to your walk with Christ if it's not biblical. If it's not from the Bible, if it's not from the text... You should be super suspicious of it right? Um, and questioning it. Uh, so we're going to kick off with, you know, probably the, the, the most downer one, right? The, the one that's about our nature, total depravity. So the T in TULIP is total depravity. And so if I could just roughly summarize the biblical teaching of total depravity, it's simply this, that... Mankind, our nature, since the fall, since Genesis 3, is so infiltrated by sin 
that there's not a square inch of what we think, do, or 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 say that is not tainted by sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an analogy, if you will, is the ocean is full of water, and there's not a single ounce of it that doesn't have salt infiltrating every bit of it. And it's the same way. It's not to say that you can't do good things, and that the it's just to say that even your good things are tainted and filled uh, with sin. Right. Man, that, man's totally depraved. Man is totally depraved. Um, and so, what's the what's the Bible say about this? A, a couple of texts. I alluded to Genesis three in the fall. As soon as Adam and Eve fall, right? As soon as they disobey God, He kicks them out of the garden, the the the, the OG temple. And the very next thing you get is Cain and Abel, a brother killing another brother in cold-blooded murder. Um, And so you see it already there. And then by Genesis 6, a couple chapters later, Mm -hmm. God looks down at the world and says, all the intentions of man's heart is evil continually. Right. Genesis 6, 5 is not a a happy verse. It is not. But it it summarizes total depravity. Right. Within three chapters of the fall of man, man has fell to the point where God can't even look at anyone's heart and see anything good whatsoever. Um, and then you get the flood. So a couple of passages here beyond that. I think of Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah, you know, he's a prophet, probably a pretty good dude. He's part of the Israel, so he's part of the people of God. Mm-hmm. He has this vision of the holiness of God, right? The ser- he, he has this vision of these two six-winged seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. And his reaction to seeing the holiness of God is this. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, a reference to um, a reference to basically being a leper. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When the holiness of God is revealed to Isaiah, he can't help but also see the depravity of his own heart. And his response to that is, I am unclean. Woe, I am unclean. Um, and he flees from it, right? And then God has to, you know, from the altar, he, he cleanses his sins, uh, so to speak. And then kind of the last one, and this is just a good, this is an Old Testament summary by Paul. When Paul asks the question, what then? Are the Jews any better off in terms of their relationship with God? Are they any better off than the Gentiles, right? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Paul's quick rendition of the Old Testament's assessment of the depravity of man. Right. No one is good, not one. Outside of the Spirit of God living inside of us, that's, that's the way we will live right there. So it came from uh, our first parents. We inherited it from Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, Romans 5:12 says it this way, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that means when Adam sinned, sin, because 
he became a sinner. His human nature became depraved, and therefore he passes on that depraved human nature to every generation after that. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Now, that's why we all die. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Of course, he's talking about uh, the point of the law in, in this particular time. But, uh, but what we do see is that when Adam sinned, um, he became his human nature, which was not corrupt, became corrupt, and then he passes that same corruption on to us. Therefore, before when we're born, uh, we don't have to wait to sin until we become a sinner. We actually are born into sin. So what we need to be saved from is not sins, lowercase s, sins, uh, individuals. Uh, what we need to be saved from is the capital S, sin, that we're born into our corrupt human nature. So everyone that's born in the line of Adam, and that's everybody, is totally depraved. Yeah, and this sets the foundation, right, for the rest. Right. sets the foundation of man cannot expect man to save himself. Right. Now, that is, that is, that is a downer. Yeah. That's a downer. It's a downer. That's a sure. downer. But, you know, you got to start with the bad news to get to the good news. Yep. All right, what's our next letter? Um, the next one is you, you, unconditional election unconditional election so when you think about unconditional election it just means that your election your being chosen by god your being elected is not conditioned on anything that you've done it's unconditional election so when god chooses you it is out of his own goodwill his own decision uh, his eternal past decision on who's going to be saved it's not conditioned on anything you've done. You haven't been awesome. And so now that you've been awesome, he's going to elect you. Or you haven't been so terrible that he won't. There is no condition upon which your election happens. It's totally his decision. Unconditional election. So God elects whom he'll elect. And he elects the, and He won't elect those whom he won't elect. But when he does, it's totally out of his good pleasure. It's not out of anything we've done. It's Unconditional, which is probably good because we're totally depraved. Right, right. Um, so, just a couple verses to uh, help us see that. I'm starting in Ephesians one. Uh, this is starting in verse three. Blessed be God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Now, um, I was only born in 1974. So I hadn't done anything ever at the beginning of creation. because Or before it. <laughs> there was no chance that I was alive doing anything good or bad. So there, there was nothing that could have been predicated where I could have done something to where he would choose me. Because if he made that decision before the foundation of the world, and I was born in 1974... And Chris was born in 2000. What year were you born? 89. I'm 89. A, I'm an 80s baby. <laughs> Barely. Um, so if he was born in 1989, then that means the decision was made whether we were going to be in Christ or not far before we were born. Right. Um, and that's the point. It, it, 
if we're in Christ, um, it's because God decided before the foundation of the world. That means there's no condition that we've done. It's unconditional election. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love. And then it says, um, in love, that little in love, by the way, on uh, the end of verse 4, in love, in our English, uh, it's holy and blameless before him, period, in love. Uh, Calvin makes a pretty good case that you could actually take the in love both ways because there are no commas, no periods. And right. Paul just wrote it together. So he does make this little case where that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us for the adoption um, to himself as sons and, of course, and daughters through Jesus Christ. So why did he choose us? Because he loved us. In love, he predestined us. So uh, that predestined us is key because you could say, some could say, unconditional election is, yeah, he chose before the foundation. Some could say he knew that you were going to live in 1974, and he knew what you were going to do. And so he looked down through the corridors of time, and based on the things that you were going to do, that's whenever he way back long ago decided to choose you. So it was conditioned on the life you were going to live that he knew. No, because it says he predestined us. So uh, when he says predestined, that means he chose before anything had ever happened. So that's one text. Uh, the other text, of course, uh, I could just read all of the chapter of Romans 9, um, but I'll, I'll pare it down. <laughs> I'll pare it down to just a couple verses. But if you go to Romans chapter 9, um, starting at verse 10, uh, it says this, uh, And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born, and here it is, here's the key, they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that Christ's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the, serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau as I've hated. And in the same way, um, in the exact same way, because the overarching point of Romans 9 is not Jacob and Esau, it's how is man saved. In the same way, um, there is no condition that it's happened. It says, before they were born, they had done neither good or bad. So that is, that is how we're elected. It's before we're born and we've not done good or bad, the election comes um, unconditional on what we've done. It's totally on God's divine choice. So that is the you, unconditional election. Yeah, I mean, just uh, going on with that Romans 9, Paul quotes Moses. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's Moses talking about God. And then he says, Paul goes on to say, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, which means works, but on God who has mercy. Um, some people take that and they say, oh, he elects collectively through Jesus Christ. But in the passage that you just mentioned some individuals, Paul just mentioned some individuals, and then later on he's going to talk about Pharaoh, an individual. He's talking about individual people, um, and, and, and he applies it individually. And so that, that's the unconditional election. That's the you, which brings us to the L. And unless you're a Christmas Calvinist, you, you affirm the L. The Christmas Calvinist is the one 
who sings the song Noel. Noel. Oh, Noel. That's uh, Larry Goins' joke. Can you keep singing? No, I'm not. I, I don't <laughs> never do what you're good at if someone doesn't pay you. Um, so Limited Atonement, that's the L. Uh, there are a couple other names that some people give to this. Some people are a little, they don't like the idea of limited because it makes it sound like it's limited. Right. So they give limits like. Limits God. Yeah, it limits God. So some people call it particular redemption. Mm-hmm. He redeems a particular people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people call it definite atonement. I think that's R.C. Sproul. Definite atonement. Uh, it, it accomplishes whatever he sets out. The atonement is definite. It accomplishes what it atones for. I've heard for. people also say that it's limited, unlimited. <laughs> yeah. They want to make a little delineation between the two. So, so limited atonement, brief definition is that when Jesus died on the cross, the blood that was shed, the death that was, you know, had, bought, it redeemed, it purchased a particular people, namely the church universal, everyone for all time who will be found in Christ by faith alone. He purchased and redeemed a people, not all people, a particular people. And so when we talk about limited atonement, um, there are two kind of things that it balances between. On one end, if there's not a limited atonement, then what you're essentially saying, or you could be saying, is that the atonement is powerless. Meaning, if it's if it's not a limited atonement, if it's an unlimited atonement, then why isn't everyone getting into heaven? Well, they're not getting into heaven because the atonement itself does not actually accomplish what it sets out to do. So it's powerless. Mm-hmm. On the other end of that scale, if you fight against that, and you still say it's an unlimited atonement, you're a universalist. You're basically saying it does accomplish what it is. It's unlimited, so everyone eventually will get into heaven. It's so powerful that everyone goes to heaven. Yeah. Even if they don't, you know, repent and, and, and the, profess faith in Christ. The Bible gives us neither of these views. It tells us that the atonement is powerful. It is the power of God mm-hmm. for salvation. Uh, and it tells us that, no, not everyone is getting into heaven. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, say, I've heard say unlimited in power, limited in scope. There we go. Yeah. So I'll, I'll throw out a few things. This one is one that uh, Fudd likes to use, Romans 5. Um, let's see. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It even goes on to say, since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, how much will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Who is the us is essentially the question you ask there. Because if the us is the entire world, then why isn't the entire world going to be justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God? Well, if they are, that's universalism. Right. Right. And, and if, Everybody goes to heaven. Yeah. So if they are, it's universalism. Heaven. And if it's not universalism, then you're saying the atonement is powerless. It actually doesn't do what he says in this verse it does. Right. Um, uh, so moving on, you could go to Hebrews 9, the great high priest. <clears throat> Jesus is seen as the priest and the sacrifice. Uh, he says in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we have Christ's blood being sacrificed, right, like the atonement. And 
he is saying how much more will that blood actually accomplish what it sets out to do, namely um, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve and be in a relationship with the living God. And then I'll, I'll just throw one more out, and this is just the Old Testament. Leviticus 16, which, by the way, is the center. It's the center of the book. It's the heart. It's the Day of Atonement. And it's this, you know, this ritual where the great high priest once a year lays his hands on the heads of two goats, and he confesses the sin of the people um, on top of these goats. And one of the goats is released out into the wilderness as a scapegoat so that the sins of the people will never be seen again. And the other one gets slaughtered and sacrificed on the altar of the temple. And obviously Jesus is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. But listen to verse 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters, talking about the high priest, to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. The Day of Atonement, which is one of the easiest uh, allusions to Jesus' death on the cross, was set up for the people of God only, not for the entire world. It didn't. He didn't confess the, the sins of the world mm-hmm. on the goats. He confessed the sins of the people of God hmm. who were in covenant with him. Um, so that, that's limited atonement, also known as particular redemption or definite atonement. Um, so what, what's our next one? I? What's the I? Um, yeah, irresistible grace. I, w- I want to add one verse to limited. Oh, go for it, yeah. Um, this is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Verse 18. Uh, you could also do Colossians 1, 21 through 22, Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 5, 18. All three of these are similar-ish, and they make the same point. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. Um, well, I'll read 17, then 18. Uh, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we're talking about being a kine catissus, a new creation. Uh, and that's if you're in Christ, that's the case. So we're talking about those who are in Christ. And then it says in 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Who's the us? Who's the us? Well, obviously it's those that are, that are the new creations, those that are in Christ. Those are the ones that have been reconciled and they've been reconciled through Christ. And so what is it that Christ has done? He died on the cross. So the atonement is that's done by Christ is for those that are reconciled. And then it says even further, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It, has the whole world been given the ministry of reconciliation? No. Just Christians. Non-Christians are not reconciling people to God. Right. So the people that are doing the reconciling, namely Christians, are also the ones that have been reconciled. Those are the Christians because of Christ dying on the cross through the atonement. So the atonement is limited in that way because it's only been applied to those who are Christians. Now, who are those people? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, if someone confesses Christ, we know, but we don't know who the people that are going to become Christians. So this doesn't change evangelism. We still tell everyone because we don't know uh, for whom Christ has died. We don't know who the right. elect are. So right. this changes evangelism nothing, nothing at all. And I would just add this right here in the middle of the L, um, if you look at church history, go go look at this. Um, if you look at church history over the last 2,000 years and look where the strongest times of global, local, big-time missions and evangelism has happened, 
it's been mostly done by reform guys, not Arminians. The strongest moves and the biggest happenings in church history where scores and scores of people are getting saved are generally, over the last 2,000 years, done with people that hold to the uh, doctrine of grace. Doctrines of grace, interestingly enough. So uh, here we go. So that's T-U-L-I. I I is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Uh, Irresistible grace is the idea that once God, in his mercy, in his grace, uh, chooses you and shows you, opens not just your physical eyes, but the eyes of your heart. Once the eyes of your heart are illuminated to be able to see and understand the grace of God and what he's done for for you on the cross, you'll always say yes. It becomes irresistible. There's not ever a case where someone sees and understands and it's like, oh, that's what Christ has done. And God's quickened them. God's regenerated them. And they're able to see and understand the gospel fully. And they say, you know what? Nah, not for me. For those that do say no, it means that they haven't been regenerated. But for those that have finally been regenerated by God, John 3, where the wind blows, the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates them. When that happens... Uh, then they see the grace of God and they will always say yes to it. There will not be ever a time. Those whom God uh, wants and God shows his mercy, it's irresistible to them and they say yes. Here's a Bible verse, a couple at least. John chapter 6 verse 37. All, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That means the grace is irresistible. When God has decided that they're going to come to him, it says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That is uh, preordained, and they will come. Uh, And then verse 44 in the same part says, no one can come to the Father unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. So when the Father draws... He, he comes. Whenever the Father drawed us uh, and opened our minds and hearts and regenerated us, we see this grace and it's irresistible. We're going to say yes to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, just real quickly, um, sometimes people call this effectual calling, and that's exactly what it means. It means that when the Word of God is proclaimed to the elect, to those who have been predestined, right, unconditionally elected, and who have had the atonement, they've been atoned for by the death of Jesus, when the calling through the Word of God comes, it affects them. It regenerates them. It changes them. It removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. It sprinkles them with clean water. It puts the Spirit of God into them, right, and causes them to obey uh, and walk out the, the statutes of God. So when, we, when we're talking about an irresistible grace, effectual calling, I mean, we're, we're talking about Romans 10. How can, how can they believe if they don't hear, right? It's when the word of God is proclaimed, God sometimes opens the eyes of our heart to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, John 3, you referenced it. When Jesus is preaching to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. Well, you know, the very next chapter... I mean, right. How much did you have to do with your, your physical birth? Well, yeah, we could even just go in that analogy. Zero. Zero. <laughs> so how um, much do you have to do with your spiritual birth? Zero. Right. right. God did um, And so even with that, there's two stories here. In John 4, the Samaritan woman, right, the well, she's at the well. 
Jesus preaches to her. She immediately, right, believes in him, mm -hmm. rushes down to the town, tells everything mm -hmm. about Jesus, and brings even more people to Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, old Nicodemus shows up two other times in the book of John. He shows up about in the middle of John, and he sticks his neck out just a little bit for Jesus. He's like, doesn't our law not condemn a man before he has his trial, basically? And they're like, what are, what are you, one of his disciples, too? The next time you see Nicodemus is, is, is in John 19, when he's with Joseph of Arimathea, taking the dead body of Christ off the cross during the week of the Passover feast, meaning he's made himself, by the law, unclean to participate in the Passover feast. Why? Because he's participating in the real Passover feast. He's been regenerated. So sometimes it looks different. Factual calling can be immediate, like Samaritan woman. It could be over time, like Nicodemus. But nonetheless, every believer... At some point in time, when they hear the word of God, God shows them the glory of Christ, and they, they can't resist him. They, they are affected. They are changed. They are transformed. Um, so our last one is P, perseverance, perseverance of the saints. And this is important because this is... Once saved, always saved. Exactly. Once saved, always saved. But this is important because this kind of puts some flesh onto it, right? All this sounds like very theological. This puts, what does it look like? That a totally depraved person has been elected unconditionally, has been atoned for by Christ, and now has seen the grace of Christ and tasted it. What does that look like? Well, number five tells you it looks like perseverance until the very end, mm -hmm. to the end of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so what this means is, is everyone who has tasted of grace, has been atoned for, has been elected, they will persevere in faith until the very end, until death do them part. Um, and so a couple of verses here, that, uh, Bible verses that support this. In Matthew 10, Jesus is actually talking about persecution that will come to everyone who follows him. And they shouldn't expect anything else because, you know, Jesus is persecuted. He says in, in verse uh, 21 through 22, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And then the other, the other Bible verses I guess I would throw in here is really the entire book of Revelation. The entire book of Revelation is about the victory of God, the victory of the Lamb. He, he was killed, and he has now overcome in his resurrection. He is now ruling over the, the principles of darkness. And the entire book is mimicking. It's, it's saying to the people of God, like the lamb, those who follow the lamb will also overcome. They will endure in the midst of tribulations, crucifixions, and all the things that will come. They will endure, and they will overcome the world. So I'll just give you two from it. Are you going to read the whole book of Revelation? The whole book right now. Start in verse 1. Now, this is chapter the Revelation 2. Revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is chapter 2, verse 26. It says this. Uh, the, this is Jesus talking to one of the local churches, by the way. He says, the one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, which is a, by the way, that's a throwback to the Daniel son of man passage. Jesus rules with the rod of iron. And so now he's saying, my followers will also rule. We're participating in his rule. As with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Uh, so that's Revelation 2. Another Daniel one. sounds like a good book to preach through. It, it really does. We should. Um, 
Revelation 14, 12 says this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This whole chapter is posed as a, a call to saints to endure and to keep the commandments and to keep their faith in Christ, even in the midst of persecution and death and tribulation and all the things that can come. So saints who are, uh, are elected and atoned for and have received the grace of Christ, they will persevere until the end. Right. Um, I would just add two, two verses. So uh, Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise to us that we will, if we're in Christ, um, go to the end. We will persevere to the end. Um, and that's because of Jesus Mm-hmm. Not because of you. He who began the good work, that's Jesus, will bring it to completion. That's Jesus at the day of Christ Jesus. So our perseverance certainly looks like us persevering in faith. Right. All the while, Christ is also uh, giving us the faith to persevere. Right. 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 Um, and so Giving and strengthening. Right. And so the only question that you could have is just... Um, well, what about people that look like they're Christians um, and they look like they're persevering, but all of a sudden later on in life, they uh, they renounce their faith or right. they start uh, affirming totally unbiblical things mm-hmm. um, and essentially become universalists or walk, seemingly just walk away from what would be... Embrace another gospel. Embrace another gospel another or Jesus. walk away, right? Well, First John tells us what's going on there, and it's, it's helpful to understand and sad because it means we have an understanding of what was going on. So First John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us. So that means talking about people that left. They left the faith. They left the church. Um, and then it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. So they're not Christians. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So if they were to stayed Christians, they would have stayed here. But since they left, that means they're not. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so it means that they, they left the faith because they never were Christians. They might have looked like Christians. They might have smelled like Christians. They might have acted like Christians. But if they walk away... If they don't persevere to the end, it means that they never were one, which is helpful to understand, but also extremely sad because we want them to trust in Christ now. So if you go to them, you, you would say, trust in Christ now, right. become a Christian now, believe in Christ now for the forgiveness of your sins. You would still say the same thing to them. You would tell them the gospel, right? Um, but it it means that all the while they were play acting. You know, you look at the four soils. They were soil one, two, or three. They weren't soil four. Right. Um, the world choked them out. Um, they put their, their uh, the thorns came up and choked them out, or they put it in rocky soil and water washed them away, or they were on the road and the right. birds ate them away. Well, they, and they and, weren't in, in, in good soil, and, and that's one of those, why they didn't persevere to the end. One of those soils, right? I mean, they received the word with joy. Mm-hmm. But the roots couldn't go down because of the rocks, right? And then they were dried up. Mm-hmm. So w- 
when we say like uh, it, that means it can look like that for years. Yeah. Well, and it and it they think they right. think they're saved. They look. That's why I said right. they look like Christians. Yeah. They act like Christians. Right. They talk like Christians. But if they walk away from persevering until before they die, First John two nineteen, right? They never were Christians, right? Which is yeah. is really sad. And, and it goes back to. Um, you know, if you accept the other side, if you go to the other side, right? Oh, no, you can lose your salvation. Well, you don't have any assurance at that point that you're truly saved. But the Bible gives assurance. We right. just And Jesus just, says, all the Father gives to me will never fall right. away. We just we just listed off a ton of Bible verses that give tons of assurances. Uh, but the second thing is, is, again, we're back in this powerless Christ mode of, like, his work is not enough. You have to do the rest, right? You have to keep believing. You have to keep persevering right. and not lose your faith. Um, and the book of First John is written. I mean, I'm, I'm reading for First John too, but the book right. of First John is written so that you can know that you're saved. I mean, he tells right. us his point in First John chapter five, verse thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. The whole point of the book, book of First John, is assurance of salvation. Yeah, right. So we can have assurance. He promises that. Now, this is for those that believe in the word of God. If you don't believe the Bible's the word of God, then then we we can't we're having, argue. We're having a second conversation. <laughs> right. We can't but argue from the Bible. This is for if you believe the Bible is the word of God, the inerrant word of God, the inspired word of God, the um, sufficient word of God, then then we're on the same we're on the same ground. And we're just showing you this is how the Bible speaks to understand those kinds of things that happen. Of course it's sad and we hate it and we don't want people to ever walk away from the faith. And if they do, we, we want them to hear and receive the good news of the gospel and become believers. Yep. Um, and, and I guess to, to kind of end it with good news, right? What this means, this, this biblical doctrine, right? These doctrines that we just walked through showed that this is what the Bible teaches about our God. This is what the Bible teaches about us. It means that God is absolutely in control in your, of your salvation. Mm-hmm. And who else, whose other hands would you rather trust your life to? Not mine. Or any other person's life to? There's only one who does good. Yeah. Um, and it's not It's not us. Uh, so kind of conclusion here. Um, what are, if, if some people are hearing this and they're like, man, this sounds interesting. I've never heard about Reformed Theology or Tulip or some of these things. What are, what are some resources, some books or... Uh, whatever you would recommend to them. Uh, three books um, for me would be the first one to be "Chosen by God" by R.C. Sproul. Um, reading that book was the book that convinced me of uh, Reformed theology. It's actually the book that changed my mind. Before, when I was an Armenian, uh, I I borrowed it from my friend in college after college because I was an Armenian and I wanted to read it so I could know the Reformed people's arguments and so I can argue with them better. Uh, from an Ar- Ar- Armenian perspective, and when that, after I read it, I was like, "Oh man, he uses Bible verses, and I don't." Oh man, I believe the Bible. I think that I'm wrong. Uh, so, chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. And, and by the way, that last statement—that's important. If you find a better biblical argument mm-hmm. that makes better sense, you should do that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anything that's in the Bible, we affirm. If if you just make philosophical emotional arguments. I just don't think that I could ever believe in a God that would do that. Well, where in the Bible does that say? Right. Like, the God doesn't uh, 
in his word say, choose to believe and be saved by me if you believe in a God who's like this. Otherwise, I'll just save you anyway. That's, right, right. that's, that's not what he says, right? We, we believe the Bible, and so we don't have a decision on whether we like the way the Bible's written or we like right. the way that God saves. Right. Um, and right, so we have to like it because it's he did it, and he's good. So chosen by God. Desiring God by Desiring John Piper God. is another one. I think it's great. Um, this is a kind of a random one. But there's this book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. It's a slog to read. It's very long. But in the very beginning of it, in the preface or the introduction, J.I. Packer writes an intro to the book. And in the intro to the book of The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen, J.I. Packer, in his preface, writes an intro to uh, Reformed Theology, Five Points of Calvinism, The Doctrines of Grace, which is just maybe one of the best works I've ever read. Yeah, it's yeah. it's short, but man, it's so good. Uh, I would just throw out, um, read any of the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, <laughs> and you can Google them. Like you can just right. say Charles Spurgeon sermons, and you can get PDFs for free. Read any of the the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, um, for sure. And then another little book because you referenced J.I. Packer. Uh, J.I. Packer writes a book, um, is it Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he talks about this idea of our duty is proclaiming the Word of God to people and how God's sovereignty is even in that. And that's a good practical Reformed book because it's like, well, I'm supposed to evangelize, but I believe all these things? Mm-hmm. Yes, because the Bible also tells us to evangelize. So that it's a very short book, um, yeah. very easy to read. Very easy. And incorporates this and gives it a more kind of do this. This is how you do it. It's very good. Um, So I guess we can conclude with this. Why why this? Why why Calvinism? Why Reformed theology? Again, Spurgeon says Reformed theology is just a nickname for biblical theology, so that's why. But in in Scripture, like you referenced Ephesians 1 for unconditional election when we're talking about predestination. There's a threefold refrain in Ephesians 1 to the praise of of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his grace. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what this does. When, when we align our, our, our teaching and our actions and our words to what God says about himself and what he says about our salvation, it is the most glorifying thing we can do for God. Yeah, and that's what it all ends in. This is the most glorifying um, understanding of Scripture that I've seen. Right. And that's why we believe it. And I just can't believe he would, I mean, he didn't have to choose me, right? Right. But he did. And so, wow. Like, yeah. wow, that's amazing. I love him. I I want to tell more and more people about him. And I'm just amazed that he would choose me to be one of his, one of his sons. I didn't deserve it at all. And so, because he chose me, because he loves me, I want to give him glory. Yep. All right, well, uh, we'll end it here. We had a, uh, a good time with this. We hope that it was edifying to you and the church, and we'll see y'all again next time. Do, 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 do.